Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Crowded Out. Today, we're very pleased to have with us Martin Sharkey as our guest on the podcast today. We'll be talking about securitization. Martin, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Um, thanks for inviting me, guys. Do you want to just quickly introduce yourselves to our guests? What do you do? How you got to where you are today? Sure. Um, so uh, I studied law at King's College London. Um, was there for three years. Um, in my second year at uni, I did a vaccine with Clifford Chance. Uh, and then following on from that, I got a training contract with them. So I started working at CC um, back in 2003 uh, and was there until 2016 when I left to, um, yeah, well, when I left to have a short period of unemployment and then joined Denton's as a partner in their structured finance practice, um, which is where I still am at the moment. Um, Great. So you clearly do a lot of work with structured finance and securitization. So I think a question that a lot of students have when entering the field of law is why go into corporate law and work on the legal side of things and why not work with actual structured finance entities? So what's more exciting about being in law? Um, I, I think a lot of that probably isn't down to an active choice. A lot of it is down to being on a conveyor belt, which takes you to your destination without you having to apply too much thought. Um, so having studied law at uni, um, you're then naturally funneled into a legal career path. Um, everything that's um, thrown at you is to do with how to apply for training contracts, how to do many pupillages, get a place at the bar. Um, I think if you were looking at a career um, in finance, but coming at it from a, a non-legal background, for example, if you studied economics, or have done an MBA, then you're probably going to be more aware of, of what choices are available to you than, than a law student. Um, again, going back to the short description I gave of, of how I, of my career path to date at, at the beginning. Um, for me, when I got the vaccine at Clifford Chance, that was pure luck in many ways. Um, I went along to, to a law fair in my second year at uni, just went around the different booths, picking up brochures. One was, one must have been for Clifford Chance. In those days, the application form was handwritten in pen. I filled it in with my answers, put it in the post, sent it off. And a period of time later, I got a letter back saying, you are invited to our VAC scheme. Um, and from then on, um, you know, you, you continue as a lawyer. Um, I think coming from a legal background, I think as you get more senior, you probably think more and more from, from qualification onwards, would I like to go in-house um, as a lawyer or would I actually like to maybe go in-house but work on the business side as opposed to the legal side? Um, and I think there's a lot of attraction in making that move. As a lawyer, you don't make key decisions that determine how a transaction goes, you're not the one who's um, making the final decisions on the negotiation, but rather you're the advisor to those who are, um, or you're conveying their decision to the other side. Um, I think there's a, 
a lot um, that appeals in being the one who makes the decision as opposed to just being the one who stays in the office till after midnight trying to um, reflect in the documentation the decision the client has made um, um, but I mean whether it's law whether it's finance um, both are, are, or finance on the business side I, I think both are good careers um, both are, are exciting um, if you are a lawyer then you work for lots of different uh, and you get to see um, how different clients work operate um, work on a variety of deals whereas I would suppose that if you are in-house working for a particular client then all you're going to see is that client's deals in, in that particular area and the, the range or, or your visibility of what else is out there will, will be smaller. I think something else that a lot of people have so immediately when I think of structured finance as a student I think of the movie The Big Short, I think of the 2008 housing crisis, I think of all these very dramatized, exaggerated versions of, you know, these mortgage home loans being packed into these crazy financial products by Wall Street. And that's my idea and a lot of students' idea of how securitization works. And obviously that might be very far or very close to reality. So what do you think is something students who are interested in this area should know before entering it? Um, I mean, I liked, I liked watching Big Short. I liked watching The Wolf of Wall Street. Um, um, not too long ago, I read uh, Nick Leeson's autobiography about the, um, the collapse of Baring's Bank. Um, uh, I think the Big Short as a film, it's um, it's a good film. I found it interesting. I think of a lot of what it, uh, the information that it tries to get across to the audience, I, I think is you know is, is good information. Um, I think naturally in in a film or a book um, or a play, you're obviously going to want to get across exciting features of the job, the the parts where maybe there are moral hazards or um yeah questionable practices perhaps because that is what grabs the headlines a lot of the job is definitely not that exciting doesn't necessarily involve um morality or questions of integrity a lot of it is about hard work um and yeah rewarding interesting deals deals that maybe can make a difference to people's lives in terms of they'll be done for clients or in relation to operating companies and so real businesses um, and then it can be a very rewarding job um, but yeah, to conclude yeah they're, they're good films um, um, and I think you can distill something from them um, but always be, be wary that the actuality is is not the same as the, the glamorized version so like the question that I have for you then is like, what is securitization then in its essence? And why is it important? Why do financial players use this financial practice in the first place? And what are some of the sort of ethical risks that accompany uh, securitization? Um, okay, good, good question. Um, when I did my fact scheme at, at CC, um, for one week I was in the, the securitization team there and, and I asked the same question. And the answer that um, the trainee who was supervising me gave to me um, was that securitization is is a type of alchemy and effectively it's it's making money from nothing um, unfortunately that is not, um, 
what it actually is. Um, in, instead, I would I would throw the question back to you. Uh, but I'd start with the with the um, with the basis of securitization is a way of raising finance. So unless there is a need for securitization, it wouldn't exist. Therefore, your starting point needs to be if a company needs to raise finance, what are the options available to it? Yeah. So tell me, what do you think the options are? Well, either you can go for a traditional, you can take out a loan, right, and or yeah. issue debt, or it can uh, float some shares on the, on the markets, right, do an IPO or sell yeah. additional shares. And there are other, other alternatives to securitization like covered bonds, right? So like these are the traditional, uh, these are some of the array of options that players have before them to raise, raise capital. So your answer is very good. Um, so the options a company has, you picked out um, most of the key ones, raise equity, um, a corporate bond, take out a bank loan. Um, I'd probably also throw in there um, sell assets. Um, I, I think the next question then is, why would a company choose one of those means of raising finance over the other means? Maybe if you start with equity, what would you say are the advantages and disadvantages over a company increasing its share capital to raise finance compared with taking up debt? Well, like for my background research on securitization is a topic, right? Like some of the benefits of securitization are cheaper funding costs, right? Because it's supposed to be, in theory, a much more efficient reallocation of risk to less risk averse investors. Okay. So let's come on to securitization. But I think before we look at securitization, yeah. let's just look at the main forms. So again, going back to equity, um, why would a company want to take out equity? What would be advantages for it from going that route? But also what would be the disadvantages? Because before we can get to securitization, we have to rule out why other mainstream financing options aren't attractive to the company. I think with equity, there might be a serious case of loss of ownership because you're basically handing out ownership in the firm. And I think as so I think the three main options usually are debt, equity, and mezzanine finance, which is like a mix of the two. So, okay. Well, again, again, let's stay with the equity. So hmm. you're completely right. Um, if a company is going to bring in new shareholders, then it's losing um, ownership of, of the company. Um, so therefore, there's a loss of control for the existing shareholders, but there's also um, a loss of profit as well. Um, this situation is going from you having current shareholders, you have all control and receive all the profit, to then now having to share that control and profit with with new shareholders coming in but on the other side of the coin the advantages with issuing um, extra share capital are that you don't have any obligation either to repay that back or to make ongoing um, return on capital payments there's there's no interest requirement you can make dividend payments, but there's there's no obligation on the cap on the company to dividend interest payments out. Now, having said that, most companies um, would probably um, see debt um, financing as more attractive because it avoids the, the negative of, of of the equity financing, even though it hasn't got the positives. So, if you then move on to the debt financing options. Um, 
bank loan, corporate loan, corporate bonds, sorry. Um, I mean, they're, they're different types of, of financing, um, but, but what do both of those types have in common? Risk stays with the originator. Okay, good. Um, but you wouldn't call it an originator, you, you'd call it the issuer or, or the borrower. Um, so um, if you make a, a bank loan to, to a company, you're taking um, risk on the ability of the borrower to repay, uh, and the same with, with a corporate bond. Uh, a corporate bond is, um, think of a bond as, as an IOU. Um, bonds um, can be listed um, um, and held through clearing systems, which makes them more tradable, more liquid than, than, than a loan would be. But in, in many ways, fundamentally, a corporate bond and a corporate loan, it's a way of getting, company, of, of getting money from financiers to borrower. Um, okay, what we, or let's say a company has a choice um, of taking out a, a bank loan from a variety of different lenders. What do you think would sway it to choose one lender over another lender? Depending on the leniency of the conditions that they put forward. So I'm sure that there are lenders that allow firms to take the debt at a much lower interest rate or they can, things like that. Agreed again. Um, and you talk about interest rate. So ultimately in a transaction, what drives the interest rate? What is the interest rate a, a reflection of? Um, the interest rate can be a reflection of how secure that like, say I'm lending to a giant bulge bracket bank, chances are they might not default on it because they have a sort of reputation that they will pay back the money because they are a giant institution, they're reliable. So I can afford to give them a lower interest rate because it'll be cheaper for them because I know that I have a security that I will get my money back. Reflecting the risk of the... Yeah, exactly. Okay, perfect. I, I couldn't have answered it better myself. Um, so interest rate, as you say, is a reflection of risk. Um, and, and this really is where I see securitization coming into play. Um, securitizations offer borrowers a cheaper means of raising finance, i.e. Um, have a, a lower interest rate payable on the debt. Um, and they do that because they should be a lower risk investment for the financiers. Yeah. And that leads us into, into the whole realm of structured finance securitization and explains why it exists. And then from there, you can go on and look at what exactly is a securitization? How does it operate? What are different asset classes? How do you distinguish between different structures. Probably should say that cheaper funding won't be the only reason why entities look to securitize. I mean, that there are other reasons as well that a borrower could look to, could be looking to diversify its um, funding base, not wanting to be too reliant on a, a particular means of funding, may want to achieve regulatory capital relief on assets that it's got on its balance sheet. Um, what else? Or it may just want to um, recycle um, assets it currently has on balance sheet into um, into new assets. So by securitizing assets, it gets them off balance sheet. It gets new cash in the door, which it then can use to to increase its portfolio and and, and lend out um, um, more cash to to create more assets. 
what is a securitization then? Um, well, really, we have to look at how can we reduce risk from a normal bank loan or a normal corporate bond that would enable us to achieve a, a lower interest rate um, for the securitization. Um, so you, you've already said that with a corporate bond, a bank loan, the main risk that the finances are exposed to is the risk of, of the borrower default. Um, therefore, for a securitization, the first thing you want to do is get away from taking risk on the borrower itself. And the way that is achieved um, is through um, uh, is through replacing risk on the borrower or risk on, on a corporate entity with instead risk on a portfolio of assets. And the way that is affected is that the securitization originator, uh, and by securitization originator, I mean the corporate entity that is looking to raise finance, um, it would transfer a portfolio of assets to an SPV. Um, and the SPV then issues bonds, um, sometimes called notes, um, to investors in the capital market, um, which are then backed by that portfolio of assets which the SPV has acquired. Um, so maybe to, um, to correct the structure slightly that I've just portrayed, you have um, timing-wise, you would have the SPV issue the notes with the cash it gets from the note holders, it would pay a purchase price to the um, originator, so the corporate entity, and in return, the originator transfers the assets to the SPV. Um, the attraction with um, the SPV is that unlike the originator, it has no liabilities other than the liability to repay the note holders the cash that they've advanced to it. Whereas with your originator, whether you're talking about Marks and Spencer, British Airways, Microsoft, uh, whoever, although they will have lots of assets, they will also have lots of liabilities to other entities. And as a financier in a securitization, you're getting away from all those risks by financing the SPV only. And instead your only risk becomes that pool of assets, which the originator has transferred to the SPV. Yeah. Great. Uh, I think it might be worth considering what an SPV is because uh, slightly more in depth because I remember first reading about securitization and it's very hard to understand what a special purpose vehicle really is because there's a lot of information about it but only linked to the pro whole entire process of creating a security. It's very difficult to understand what it actually is. So I think it might be helpful if you go into a bit of depth about what an SPV is, why it's, you went into why it's important, but what is an SPV? Yes, um, thanks for picking me up on that. Um, it's, a, it's a good point to raise. By SPV, we just mean a, a newly incorporated company that has no operating history, um, no liabilities. It has no purpose other than that of the securitization. Um, so again, it, it all comes down to, um, as an investor, you are only taking risk on a pool of assets. And the way you do that is you set, set up a, um, a special purpose vehicle, a single purpose vehicle, a shell company that, whose only 
purpose in life is to hold those assets and to use the um, the payments from those assets to make payments to the note holders. Um, look at it as a blank piece of paper, whereas the um, the originator entity that wants to raise the finance and which is using the SPV, that's not a blank piece of paper, that's a entity with history. Um, good history, bad history, but history that is potentially dangerous to a financier because it could lead to the insolvency of the originator and the financiers do not want to take um, insolvency risk um, on a borrower in this scenario because the financing they're provided pays an interest rate that doesn't build in, in insolvency risk. It is purely a reflection of how the underlying assets are performing. And when I talk about the securitization of assets, the type of assets we're looking at are things like mortgage loans. So the loan that a bank has made to you or your parents to buy an apartment or a house, um, lots and lots of those bundled together and sold by the bank to the SPV. The repayments from those mortgage loans are then used to make repayments of the principal that has been advanced for the notes and the interest payments from the mortgage loans are used to make interest payments on the notes. Circling back to some of the controversies that surround securitization, right? Like, what essentially, what is the essential ethical risk here when uh, when it comes to securitization, right? Because, at like fundamentally, it looks like you're you're splitting the originator is no longer the the risk holder, right? Risk responsibility transferred to credit rating agencies and the ultimate investors in the securities, right? So, how what what's the dynamic there, and how does that how does that play down the past and yeah, I mean, you're right in, in that the um, by selling the the assets, um, so the pool of in this case mortgage loans, but it could equally be corporate loans, um, credit card loans, credit card receivables, auto loans, so a loan to enable someone to, to buy a, a car. A any type of loans can be securitized. You're right that by securitizing them, the originator is no longer taking risk on on those assets. Um, and instead is getting cash, um, but it's no longer getting the, the benefit of those assets either. Um, and investors have the choice to either take risk on the originator, in which case they can finance the, the originator through a corporate bond issued by the originator itself, or by providing a, a bank loan to, to the originator. Um, the investor has that option um, instead, um, through doing a securitization or through participating in one, the investor should be clearly aware that there's not going to be any recourse to the originator um, if the assets in the securitization don't perform, but instead the investor is taking risk on, on those assets. Now, if you go back to the financial crisis, a lot of the um, a lot of the banker or the bad publicity and the, the poorly performing um, securitizations um, were due to the fact that you had um, originators who were um, selling assets to a securitization, so to the SBV, and then they had no interest in how those assets performed. And because of that state of affairs, when they were creating those assets in the first place, 
making decision to lend to um, to the borrower, um, whether that's you, me, whoever who wants to take out the mortgage loan, when they were taking that decision, they weren't that first about ensuring that the borrower had the means to repay, or if it didn't repay, then the security that the borrower provided, the mortgage over his house, whether that would be sufficient to to repay um, the loan and, and ensure that the, the securitization didn't miss out. As a result, we ended up with poor underwriting standards, assets being created, so loans being created, being made, that you couldn't really be confident would in the due course of time be repaid. And then when it did come to repayment, those borrowers, it turned out, weren't good for the money. Hence, we were left with the whole subprime mortgage crisis in, in the US. Um, I think, well, certainly things have changed since then. Um, I, I think if you luckily go back to a lot of um, um, what happened in 2008, 2009, all the, all the fallout that became apparent then, it was largely focused on subprime mortgages, um, but not just subprime mortgage securitizations themselves, but how they had then been repackaged into CDO squared or into credit default swaps. And as a result, um, you ended up with a ripple effect throughout the whole of the financial markets. What net wasn't necessarily um, or shouldn't necessarily be tainted by that push are the whole host of non-supplying securitizations, whether that's um, mortgage-backed securitizations, RMBS, subprime RMBS, um, you know, some CMBS or business securitizations, CLOs, which is what I do, a lot of which perform very well. And, and I say a lot, I mean, you, you can still say in, in Europe that arguably no AAA rated CLO has technically defaulted. Um, um, securitization has proved itself by going through the financial crisis that most securitizations actually do perform and do ultimately pay investors the return the return of capital and the return on capital um, but certainly financial structures as with life they are open to moral hazards and it's about how you deal with them so following the fallout of the financial crisis one thing regulators brought in was risk retention requirements um, which meant that any originator of a securitization was required to retain 5% risk in that securitization going forward. And that could be done either by them taking a, a first loss position in the securitizations, meaning that if any defaults are suffered on the underlying portfolio, then the one who takes that hit is the originator, or alternatively by the originator having to subscribe for 5% of each class of notes issued by the securitization. So, so that's a, a way um, that it's seen to, or that it's ensured that the originator's interest is aligned with that of investors and that if the securitization doesn't perform, then not only do the investors suffer, but the originator also suffers. And then you can go on to look at things like reputational risk and uh, et cetera. It ropes well into a question about like ongoing legal frameworks and regulation of securitization, right? And like whether we're swinging towards requiring overcapitalization, whereas before we had the opposite extreme of allowing undercapitalization. A quick point to add there. Um, do you think that 
So firstly, I found that really interesting because most of the literature out there about CLOs in news or even on YouTube actually is, which is what most students see, is that CLOs are nothing but just repackaged um, financial products from the housing crisis and they're going to give us another way. So that's a really interesting perspective and definitely not something that I've come across before. So thank you for that. I think when you speak about legal frameworks, I'd be really interested to hear about how quickly they evolve to keep up with trends in financial products. So I think that'll be interesting. Okay. Um let me come in there because I think what we shouldn't do is just give half a picture of, of what a securitization is. Um, we talked about the transfer from the originator to the SPV. Um, I, I think we should also pause there and just focus on the fact that that transfer needs to be done by way of what is called a true sale. Now, by that, I, I previously said that the reason for doing a securitization is to get away from taking insolvency risk on, on the originator. Now, if after the securitization has been issued, let's say a few years hence, um, the originator then goes into insolvency, the fear of the securitization creditors would be that the creditors of the originator then chase after the assets that have been put in the securitization. To um, prevent that, um, it's important that the transfer from originator to SPV takes, by, takes place by way of a true sale. And what that means is that we don't want those creditors of the originator to be able to challenge the sale and argue that the assets never left the originator in the first place, but instead should be still available to those creditors and not to the creditors of the securitization. And for all securitizations, this is where lawyers come in. Um, you'd expect a true sale opinion to be required. Now, if you look at case law, which will be of interest to the law students out there, um, case law says that you have a true sale um, if you have um, a transaction uh, where the originator doesn't have the right to um, buy the assets back, um, if the originator is not entitled to the profits that the assets make in, in a securitization and if the originator isn't required to make up the losses um, that are suffered by um, the securitization due to an underperformance of the assets. Um, okay, I should say that they are indicators uh, of a true sale so it's not the case that if you have all three then you definitely have a true sale and it's not the case that if you don't all have all three that you don't have a, a, a true sale, but, but they are indicators that a court will look to. The danger is that if you don't have a true sale, instead the transfer of assets from the originator to the SPV could instead be characterized as a secured loan. And if it's characterized as a secured loan, um, the creditors of the originator could argue that the sale was void because it was never um, registered at the company's house. Also, the problem with it only being a secured loan and not an asset transfer is that on insolvency of the originator, you would find that the assets could be tied up in a moratorium of the company, um, making it difficult for the securitization creditors to get hold of those assets on a timely basis, if at all 
Um, then if you move away from that for securitization, often there are other means that will provide credit enhancement to the structure. Um, one of um, the most important of which is credit enhancement or, or tranching. Um, now, if you go back to the movie, The Big Short, um, there's the scene when um, they have the, the Jenga um, pieces, yeah? And you have the triple A notes at the top, the triple B, single A, triple B, and continues downwards. Um, okay, tranching is a way of dividing the credit risk on the underlying portfolio of assets or the debt that the SPV has raised. It means that certain creditors of the SPV will rank above other creditors of the SPV. Um, it's like me saying, okay, I will take financing from um, Andrew, Brenda and Caroline, a hundred pounds from each. Um, but when it comes to me repaying that cash, I will repay Andrew first, then I will pay repay Brenda, and then last of all, I will repay Caroline um, to the extent I don't have enough money to pay all three. Um, Caroline misses out um, to the extent I don't even have enough to pay two people. Um, Brenda could be taking a hit as well. Um, now, that means therefore that um, your AAA rated notes, so your notes at the top of the popular structure, what you can also call class A, um, they will rank top in terms of being repaid and therefore they are a safer investment, they're lower risk. Um, the, the further down what we call the capital structure you get, the more risky the investment, and the higher interest rate that will be payable. Um, um, but again, it all comes back to providing greater credit enhancement to your, your AAA notes, which are where most of your investment, maybe 50% of your, your funding is going to be coming from. And at the bottom, you'll have what we call subordinated notes, which are akin to equity, um, even if legally they're, they're debt and, and not shares. Other credit enhancement you might have, um, you'll have swaps uh, in all likelihood in case there's any uh, foreign currency risk. Uh, inherent in the securitization and that would occur if your assets are paying in one currency and your notes are paying in a different currency. You may have interest rate swaps um, to match any interest basis risk. Um, that would arise if your assets are paying um, on one interest basis but your notes are paying on another. For example, mortgage loans may be linked to um, one month you eyeball or maybe linked to Bank of England base rate, whereas your notes would instead probably be linked to three month or, or six, year, six month you eyeball. Um, but think of a swap as you're getting apples on the one hand, but on the other hand, you need to pay out oranges. Um, the swap is a way um, that lets you swap the apples that you're getting from the farmer for oranges, which you need to give to the consumer. Yeah. Um, you may also have a liquidity facility, um, a short-term loan in, in the structure of, let's say, five, ten million um, pounds or euro, which may enable you to cover a, uh, a short-term cash flow blip if you have one. Um, uh, there, are, there are lots of other ways. Um, if my clients were watching this, they would, they would say, why can he not think of an enhancement? <laughs> But the, the, the key point, the key point is, is the tranching. I mean, that is ultimately 
where where you get your your credit enhancement from and that means that effectively if you have a hundred million pound of debt um, so 100 million pound of notes issued by the securitization it then uses that to buy 100 million pound worth of assets if your class a notes are 50 million um, pounds worth then they're getting two to one over collateralization so the 100 million pound of assets is security for the 50 million pound worth of um, class a notes yeah um, and once the class a notes have been paid off only then does the, the lower classes of notes get access to the, the remainder of the collateral. Yeah. All right. Well, then, like tying off the questions about the legal framework and everything, coming back to that question about whether you do think that there's been mm. a swing to requiring too much overcapitalization when it comes to securitization as a, as a practice. Um, I mean, securitizations operate according to market dynamics, um, supply and, and demand in order to get a um a securitization away you usually need to have both um a triple a investor and um a subordinate note and a subordinated note investor you've got to have the people at the top of the capital structure happy and you've got to have the people at the bottom of the capital structure happy therefore any securitization you could describe as a as finding the halfway house between those two buckets of investors and it's a compromise you can't have everything work purely in favor of the AAA investors because then you wouldn't get the, the subordinate loan investors in the deal um, and, and, and vice versa is there too much capitalization over capitalization in, in a structure um, as a lawyer probably not a question for me um, there's certainly more over collateralization now than there was prior to the financial crisis um, what are the problems with the over collateralization? Um, the more um, the more debt financing you um, or the less debt financing you can have in a structure, um, and the greater your over collateralization demands, the less debt financing you can have. Uh, um, the more equity like financing you have to put in. Um, and that then diminishes the returns for the equity. It's going back to the whole conversation we had at the beginning um, when we were talking about how raising additional cash through equity is unattractive because it diminishes or reduces um, equities, returns from the deal, equities control over the deal. And again, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sure people will get confused, but when I talk about equity now, I'm talking about economic equity, so subordinated notes. I'm not talking about share capital. Um, so if you are a subordinated note holder in a transaction, you want there to be as few, or it is likely you may want there to be as few other subordinated note holders as possible, because that increases the return to yourself. And you may well want there to be more debt note holders, so more senior ranking note holders because that then increases the debt that the structure is taking out which is paying a lower cost of funding than, than is required on um, subordinated notes or um, mezzanine ranking debt. How do you think that structured finance entities are, are they taking ESG seriously because there's a lot of, um, there's a really interesting debate about should you take ESG seriously? Because ESG is a serious issue because you know environmental concerns are serious. Like you said, they're our future. 
social concerns, governance concerns are serious? Or should structured finance entities take ESG seriously because it's part of their financial mandate? Because taking ESG into consideration means you're taking your future returns into consideration and you're accordingly adjusting your portfolio. So what do you see happening in structured finance entities right now? Do you think they take ESG seriously for the right reasons? And when they do, how do you think you can actually take ESG seriously? What are the concrete steps to do that? Yeah. Okay. Um, I, th I think a lot of issues to talk about there. If I ramble, then, or if I forget points, then, then bring me back. Uh, <laughs> you can see I have propensity for talking a lot. Um, I, I think the first thing to say is ESG is not just related to the environment. Um, and also, it shouldn't be something that's seen as new. Um, ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. Um, and it's about how a transaction deals with, with those concerns. Um, if we're, you mentioned an article, um, I think you're talking about the article that Denton's published the other day on, on ESG and, and structured finance. Um, if, if you're looking at those different three aspects of, of ESG, so firstly, the environmental um, 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 aspect, uh, I think that's probably easy for a lot of people to see. Um, moving away from fossil fuels, looking at more environmentally friendly forms of energy, green energy, um, how we um, use the Earth's resources in an efficient and fair way. Um, if you then move and to look at um, social aspects of a transaction, um, what is the impact of the transaction on, or how does it sit with issues like diversity, um, which obviously we see a diversity, equal treatment, fair treatment. Um, we see the um, Black Lives Matter movement at the moment. We've seen, um, if you go back to the beginning of the 20th century, the whole suffragette movement. Um, you've got other issues in the early 21st century that we live in, like modern slavery, um, um, generally abuses of, of power um, and the unfairness uh, of society. So it's about how a transaction can have a positive or a negative um, impact in, in relation to those different spheres. And then finally, you've got governance. Um, I, I think for me, governance is certainly nothing new. Governance is about things like how do you deal with um, competing interests within a structure, conflicts of interests, um, how is that handled, um, if there are going to be changes made, um, like let's say libel replacement, how is that going to be dealt with in, in a structure, could one party lose out due to that, um, is there a moral hazard, um, if so um, what happens there, a moral hazard for example would be something like where one transaction party has information which another transaction party doesn't have therefore um, creating a, a situation where one side could arbitrage that information to its own gain um, but to the loss of, of, of another side um, um, if you i mean even going back um let's say five six years but i'm sure even longer you would often have ethical investors in transactions 
and those ethical investors would have requirements that they brought with them. Um, in, in my space, um, the Church of England it can be quite a big investor um, in structured finance deals, um, in CLOs. Um, you can pick up the financial press and I, I think probably going back a couple of months, there was a story about how um, an order of nuns in, in the US was picketing the offices of an asset manager because they'd invested in one of their deals and weren't happy with how that deal w w was being managed. So um, I, I think certainly there are a lot of religious organizations of whatever um, creed or denomination that have a lot of cash that is invested in the financial markets. And with that investment, they bring their requirements. So things like not wanting the money to be invested in, in, in fossil fuels, in munitions companies, in tobacco companies, in pornography, gambling, um, and, 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 and so on. Um, um, so that is very much investors driving how the funds they invest should be applied. I, I think then as a layer on top of that, moving away from non-religious or, or non-ethical organizations, again, going back to what, what I referred to earlier in terms of um, the Black Lives Matter um, protests uh, and, and similar um, movements, that raises, I think, in, in the minds of everyone, um, how, how important it is to live in a fair and sustainable society and how we should look to achieve that in the way we live our lives, whether that's on a personal basis through recycling trash or whether that's in, in a work basis and how I make my investment decisions. Certainly, if you look at banks and financial institutions now, a lot of them build into their uh, investment approval process, uh, an assessment of ESG criteria and sustainability. Um, and partly that's personal. They want to the world they live in to continue to be um, alive to continue to be green, yeah? Um, to not have factories pollute everywhere, um, but also for their children's sake. And they also want it to be a fair and meritocratic world where people have equal rights and, and equal opportunities. Um, but, but certainly in the present day and age, no one is gonna want to buy products or give cash to an asset manager who is propagating outdated or fundamentally unfair um, views or uh, views whether that be to do with sexuality ethnicity religion uh, and, 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 and so on so I think ESG is definitely here to stay and definitely very important and if I go to structure finance conferences um, which I, I often have the opportunity and, and the privilege of doing People are talking more about ESG. There are more and more panels and breakout rooms to do with ESG and, and how that should be, be treated and people wanting more information about it. At the moment, um, there, I, I don't see in, in my space or the world of finance generally or private equity or, or corporate, I, I don't see much of a legal imperative. I, I don't see in black letter law um, so much a requirement that you invest your cash um, in an ESG um, compliant way. But what I am seeing more and more of is disclosure requirements. Um, 
um, companies, asset managers being required to tell investors what they do with their cash. Is it invested in an environmentally friendly way, in a socially acceptable way, um, or, or not? Um, and there are advantages to that um, by having it more as a disclosure or more as, as a, uh, an optional regime. People are more encouraged to, encouraged to comply um, and to push it forward. Um, but at the same time, I think that probably also is a place for, for black letter law um, to maybe encourage investment, whether that's through giving financial institutions capital relief or, or incentives. Um, um, for ESG investments or whether it's a requirement that you can't make investments that are non-ESG friendly. Um, I think you've always got to be careful about um, not so much a nanny state but you've always got to be careful about going too far and telling people what they can and cannot do. And certainly there are always going to be things that are beyond the pale. Um, if you are, let's say, a manufacturing company, then you should definitely ensure that your supply chain does not feature um, abuse of employees or slavery and that they're all treated, um, uh, treated fairly and humanely and given access to human rights. I mean, that should just be a, a, a given. Uh, and obviously that needs to be a, a legal requirement. But, um, should it be a requirement at the moment that if a bank wants to advance a, a loan to an individual for them to buy a house, should it be a requirement that that house meets certain environmental standards? I don't think we're at that stage yet. Or alternatively, if someone wants to buy a new car, should it be a requirement that um, any loan used to finance that car can only be applied to purchase an, an electric car and can't be used to acquire a petroleum car again that's that's not a stage where we as society are at at the moment but maybe it will be somewhere where we get to eventually so what trends are you seeing what do you think will be like the long-term effects of COVID-19 on the area you work in mm, yeah coronavirus it's a difficult one um well, in some ways it's a difficult one, in other ways it's a very obvious one because we're already seeing an impact on the economy and, and certainly in the structured finance sphere we've definitely seen a, a, an impact. Um, I think first of all apparent to everyone is, is the impact on everyone's daily lives um, and you can actually then trace that through um, to uh, performance on structured finance transactions. The fact people are or have for a long period of time been at home, many unable to work or not work as efficiently as they have been, that's affected incomes, um, which has also affected people's ability to make payments on their mortgages, which then affects the performance of mortgage-backed securitizations. Or if you look more at the realm in which I operate, um, CLOs, the fact people um, aren't out there spending their money on the high street, affects the performance of companies who want to sell their products to those consumers and that hit then impacts negatively the performance of those companies and again means that they can't make payments on their uh, on their loans to to banks um, or to the CLO um, and, and therefore SME CLOs or leverage loan CLOs 
are, are affected. Um, so certainly, I think for a lot of lawyers and investment banks, financial institutions in the space because of COVID-19, my personal experience back in April was a big fall off in, in the amount of work um, that I was seeing. But then that kicked up um, a, a lot from, from May onwards. Um, and it went from instead putting in place new deals to instead advising clients on existing deals and how do they cope with, with defaults in their securitization portfolios? What do they do if borrowers are asking for payment holidays? Um, um, how do you work out a default? How do you restructure a transaction? Um, whether that's a, um, a particular corporate borrower um, or the securitization it, it itself. Um, then we started to see things like um, government-backed um, schemes come into operation to support um, the, the economy and you have financial institutions or corporate borrowers who are able to access those schemes so then we advise those entities on on how um, on what legal documentation they can put in place to to gain access to that um, and now we're starting to see um, new deals um, um, coming to market um, which is exciting um, so um, people are investor appetite is actually coming back maybe people are seeing um, a bargain at which they can pick up assets in the market so that might drive more private equity deals maybe more corporate M&A um, certainly financial investors um, or investors in securitizations um, they are now more readily uh, willing to to invest in in, in new deals. Um, I think as a lawyer, um, like as was my experience in the financial crisis, what it does make you conscious of is that you don't want to specialise too much, but it's important to have a variety of skills. And when there is a downturn in a particular area, to be able to turn your hand to to another area, um, and it's it's a good thing um, to live through. Um, I'd also say, um, I mean, again, on a personal basis, as a lawyer, what you've seen a lot of law firms do is, is have to make cutbacks. Uh, now, for some firms, that might mean redundancy programs, but for a lot of firms, the way they've done that is to try and um, reduce expenses or expenditure by employees agreeing to take um, reduced working hours. Um, and that includes partners as well as associates, trainees, um, business services staff, secretaries. And although in many ways that is painful, um, that does cultivate a, a whole we're all in it together feeling. Um, and no one wants to see anyone else lose their jobs. So if we can all take a bit of a pay cut to preserve jobs in a in what is hopefully a short downturn period, um, knowing that work is going to pick up and there's going to be a big demand in in the long term um then then that's a, a good thing to do and we've seen a lot of that across the legal sector whether that's uh, magic circle firms us firms or well, I, one thing i should also add is that you know the views i express they're my views they're not views of any organization that i work for and i don't know everything these are just opinions of course you know i may be older than some people i may be younger than some people but your opinions are no less valid than my own, my own, and you can feel free to agree or disagree or, or, or take a third path with regard to anything that I say.
understood. Well, like before we wrap up quickly and talk about some things that you've been doing in securitization, we were hoping to squeeze in one last question regarding securitization alternatives, right? Because you were outlining traditional ways of raising finance, of financing, right? Like normal uh, selling new shares, uh, traditional debt, and then securitization. But there are other alternatives to securitization like that, are, that aren't traditional either, such as covered bonds. Yeah, um, so covered bond, it's quite easy. It's having your cake and eating it. It's a combination of a securitization and, and a corporate bond. Um, um, uh, so depending on which jurisdiction you operate in, um, you can either have a, a transfer of assets from an originator to an SPV, um, which then issues notes um, to, to the market, or you could have the notes issued directly by um, the originator entity. But what is behind any covered bond transaction is that the investors have recourse, not just to the originator, not just to the portfolio of assets, but to both. Um, so therefore they have the, the benefit of, you know, being the only creditor in relation to the whole portfolio of assets uh, and also being a creditor to the originator yeah um, now in, in many in many structures you might see that as a um as, as the originator providing a guarantee um for the bonds issued by um the the spv or in other jurisdictions you might see it as a um a guarantee provided by the spv for bonds issued by the originator it, itself yeah. and do you see a, tra a trajectory or trends for alternatives like this to compete with securitization as a financial practice? Um, I, I think there's definitely a place for covered bonds and um, a, a big market for it. Um, I, I, I think though, in many ways, what people are looking to achieve through a securitization, they just don't achieve through a covered bond. Um, so if you're an entity looking to, to raise finance, you might well be wanting to get the liabilities away from yourself so you see it as a sale of assets what should be good assets you're divesting yourself of those assets into an spv yeah. then okay, you'll take your five percent risk retention piece that you're required by law to have in the structure you'll take that but other than that you don't want to be backstopping the whole of the, the securitization um no way um yeah so it seems securitization is here to stay. Well, we'll wrap up by tossing it back to you, Martin, and just talking about the recent deal of the year or that you got, right? And the stuff you've been doing in the industry. Uh, okay, um, this is, um, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, the year. this is not my payment for, for getting to do the podcast. Uh, I mean, I, I think, I mean, yeah, recently I, I, I had the privilege of, of working on a, um, a transaction that was fortunate enough to get Get, a, get an award from, um, from a finance magazine um, and that transaction was an SME securitization um, which involved um, um, my client um, effectively securitizing a portfolio of um, Spanish SME loans. Um, the way it did that wasn't through um, traditional securitization means it didn't um, make those loans itself and then transfer them off balance sheet into the securitization, but instead it was a bit more like a direct lending fund. Um, so it raised um, cash explicitly for the purpose of making these loans. 
um, and the loans were always funded through using SPVs. Um, and, and that's the way most CLOs work. The CLO manager itself isn't an originator, but the CLO manager instead sees an arbitrage opportunity in the market. Uh, and by that, it sees that in order to raise finance, it needs to pay um, X level cost of funds. So the interest rate, the weighted average interest rate on the notes, the finance it's going to raise. And it looks at the difference between that and um, the interest that it's receiving from a portfolio of assets. And it sees that the interest it's receiving from the portfolio of assets would be more than it would have to pay out on the debt financing. And the CRO manager and the subordinated note financiers um, that are in the deal, they take that difference for themselves. That's their incentive to do the, the deal. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Sure. I no, go ahead. Thanks. No, I think those are all our questions, but I think it would be great if you could add some advice that you wish you'd received when you were a trainee lawyer or when you were thinking about getting into law. Um, maybe not. Well, okay. Maybe not so much advice that I would give myself, have given myself, but I think certainly when you're, when you're applying for jobs, it's important to try and distinguish yourself from other applicants. Um, I remember there was a period of time when um, I would be interviewing applicants, um, and this is before I was at Denton's, and a lot of the, the graduate applications looked the same. Um, so everyone would have done a gap year, everyone would have worked for a charity during that gap year. Um, try and think of, of ways that are different, whether you're applying to a law firm or whether you're applying to a financial institution. Um, and often the more personal ways are, are the better ways that really capture the interest of the interviewer and help them to relate to you on, on a personal level. So a personal challenge that you overcome. Maybe you've always been afraid of water. So you only recently learn how to, to swim at the advanced stage of, of 21. Um, and for you, that was a big deal. Now, I think that is something that will really chime a bell with a lot of interviewers um, because they'll they'll see that as, as someone who has overcome adversity, who has the, the wherewithal within themselves to, to rise to a challenge and, and to get themselves through it. Whereas for most people, we would have just learned how to swim when we were at school and, and, and no big deal. Um, I, I remember as part of my applications, um, I applied to, or I got an interview with a law firm called Linklaters and I was interviewed by a partner then called Charlie Jacobs, who I think is now the managing partner at Linklaters. And one thing he said to me at my interview was, having read your application form, I thought you were going to be really arrogant. Um, now, that's not to say that people should come across as arrogant on your application forms, but I think it's sometimes worth taking a risk or putting yourself out, where, out there and trying to distinguish yourself from the rest of the field by maybe putting an opinion forward or or you know showing a bit of your own personality or character and getting away from the anodyne i'm a triple a student who has done what all the other triple a students have done the only the thing i would add is um at the end of the day it's a job so do your best don't try and put too much pressure on yourself um above that um and actually let me throw in one more always try and treat other people the way um, you would like them or other people to treat you. 
um, because then I think you'll get a lot more fun out of the job. You'll see it more as where you're working with friends, but also as you get more senior, then the culture um, of the of your employer, you'll have more of an influence on that, and you'll make it a, a nicer place to work for the juniors coming up between you, coming up underneath you for, for your colleagues and for people who are maybe not central to the business, but more service to the business. Like everyone's equal, whether it's um, the secretary, um, the partner, the MD, um, the first day trainee. Um, and ultimately, if you don't treat other people nicely, then it'll come back to haunt you um, later on, yeah. Thank you, thank you so much for coming on, Martin. It's been a pleasure talking. Okay, thanks then, guys.